0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome guys to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. Today I'm here with Johannes Vahelius. Um, Johannes is a physician uh, working in the UK at the moment um, and has had extensive history uh, within empirical evidence and research around critical care teams. Um, so just what, what I wanted to do today really is explore some of the themes and empirical research which Johannes has written um, over the past 10 years. Uh, so Johannes, if I could just hand the floor to you um, as we look at critical care teams, what, just if you could just give the listeners a little bit of your bio, please.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Owen, for having me. First of all, um, it's a real pleasure and I'm quite excited to be here. So about me, I'm an, as you said, I'm an emergency physician working in Bristol, Southwest England. My qualifications to this talk is mainly the research that I've done over the last five to 10 years, which focuses on critical care teams and pre-hospital care. And that's largely based on an NIHR funded PhD, which I did from 2016 to 2018. I'm also an associate editor of the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine. And from July this year, I will be working with the University of Toronto and Orange, which is the retrieval service in Ontario, Canada.
0: You've got extensive history within some fantastic empirical uh, evidence and and empirical studies comparing and contrasting the utility of physician-led and paramedic-led critical care teams. What what led you to this interest before we dive in?
1: So that's probably historic in that I trained in Germany and the German pre-hospital system, again due to historic and sometimes legal reason, A paramedic is very much somebody who assists a physician in pre-hospital care um, because they're not technically allowed up to a few years ago to actually administer any medications as paramedics. So it's a very physician-led system. And then I came to the UK and started um, working with the Great Western Air Ambulance here and saw critical care paramedics not just doing um, providing medication giving treatments but to a, a level that I would not seen before anywhere else and that sort of sparked that initial interest.
0: So you've performed a variety of studies looking at the utility of critical care teams um, as a brief synopsis what have they led you to find within either physician-led and or uh, paramedic-led systems?
1: Yeah, so the first thing that I noticed in the research is that actually it's a really poorly defined concept, this critical care, and we sort of defined it based on competent analysis as three key features which make a critical care team, and that's targeted dispatch to critically ill patients, then additional competencies which are largely high-risk interventions, and to support that a fairly robust clinical governance system to make sure that these interventions aren't just delivered, but actually to a high standard and to the benefit of the patients. And that's sort of a working definition of what pre-hospital critical care actually is. I then moved on and tried to see, can I find any evidence of benefit for pre-hospital critical care? And I started with a systematic review of critical care paramedics which identified a number of studies which showed that critical care paramedics can safely deliver critical care interventions such as thoracostomy or non-invasive ventilation. There was some possible positive impact on trauma care in general, and importantly, one randomized controlled trial which showed benefit from pre-hospital emergency anesthesia, or what it used to be called RSI, delivered by critical care paramedics in Australia. I then slightly shifted focus uh, very much looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest Um, and again did a systematic review which now looked at either physician or paramedic-led critical care and there was some research that does suggest benefit, but quite a lot of issues with confounding. Therefore, in my own research, I tried to address a lot of these confounding issues um, and ended up finding that there was no benefit in the UK setting for non-traumatic adult out of hospital cardiac arrest. So I think in summary, it's important to be realistic about the expectations of a critical care team when it comes to survival to hospital discharge, but also really important to consider what's your geography, what's your EMS setup and what's your population, what are the needs of the population that you serve?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting and and a fantastic observation, actually, Johannes, uh, Johannes, around geography does mandate um, almost a different approach to critical care because fundamentally, I think, in in some of the more built-up urbanized areas, um, there is obviously short transfer times your patient contact time and consultation time is different therefore the inter, you know the, the, the mandate towards interventions and towards stabilizing patients is, is is almost different and interestingly and something you've probably picked up on is actually there is still disparity in role role selection and uh, skill matrix within within the UK. So interestingly, as an emergency physician uh, in the UK, hopefully there's ubiquitous principles and mandates upon job descriptions throughout the UK and or otherwise. But in, but there's, that's certainly not the case and there's real disparity within critical care teams and critical care paramedics within the UK. Could you speak to that?
1: Yeah, so this is the sort of lack of a national system, isn't it? Um, and I think that's largely just a reflection of where we are in a journey rather than a sort of inbuilt issue that is never going to change. And and in essence, progress takes time. So I think if you go back 10 years and look at what pre-hospital care looked like back then um, and see how far we've come over the last 10 years with things like national organizations, training, and then you just extrapolate that over the next coming years, then I think we will be heading for increasing professionalisation of paramedicine with subspecialties that are increasingly defined with national curriculums and increasing career options for paramedics beyond the initial starting job description. Fantastic, absolutely.
0: So Janis, just looking at the domain of antiphosphoric cardiac arrest, non-traumatic antiphosphoric cardiac arrest, um, from your perspective and from looking at at the data and the research, um, and in your mind, has front-loading care critical, care, critical care teams with more interventions had a net positive impact on survival to discharge from your perspective?
1: So that's the holy grail, really, of research on this topic, isn't it? It's showing that there's benefit, and, and it's proving remarkably challenging. And certainly in my research area, so the adult non-traumatic cardiac arrest, I think an important or large benefit is extremely unlikely. And that's very likely due to the condition of cardiac arrest in itself, where, as you're sure you are very aware, most of your listeners will be very aware that all the interventions that provide big benefits are the very, very early things. And that's not even before critical care arrives, it's before even the first responder arrives at a scene of a cardiac arrest. And it's all really community interventions. So it's about prevention, education, bystander CPR, um, public defibrillator being available. These are the interventions that have big benefits. And it seems like after that, so the post ROSC care, good basic care, and a transfer to hospital is the key component. And there's very little pathology that's amenable to further interventions beyond that in the pre hospital setting. And even in hospital, it probably boils down again to mainly good intensive care rather than a specific intervention that has a big impact. So it's really, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is just a tricky condition if you want to find new interventions that have big benefits. Good.
0: So um, as we go through, Giannis, we just I just wanted to get from your
1: perspective.
0: Um, you performed, like you said, a crit- uh, systematic review on paramedic-led critical care. From your from your mind, what were the rate limiting steps within the literature, and why do you think it was such? It is such an understudied field, given some of the consequential funding it's received over the last few years.
1: Yeah, so the challenges really largely are around research methodology. So when I started out to, or decided to do research in pre-hospital care, my, my supervisor strongly advised me against it um, because it is just difficult to do. And particularly in critical care. So you want to to create meaningful research, you want a large sample size and some robust methodology to avoid bias, ideally randomization. Now the problem with a large sample size is that actually critical care teams have a very small target population. So there's your first challenge then randomization usually isn't particularly ethical um, in this context, so you can't really do that. So already you're dropping points in terms of quality of research going down to observational research design. And what you really then want is to do at least a prospective observational study, so something where you look forward rather than backwards at old data. And that takes time, it takes somebody to pay for it and someone to do the research and, and somebody to be interested in that topic. And the people that are interested in paramedical critical care are critical care paramedics who've just subspecialized, are very busy, have built up you know, an impressive skill set, and probably struggle a bit with the idea to give up all of that, to go into full time research, build a completely unrelated skill set um, at the moment. I think that's changing, though. There's now enough critical care paramedics who have done the job for five, 10 years who are ready to take on new challenges. So we'll get there. Um, but that's certainly, I think, where we were five to 10 years ago.
0: From your mind, uh, Your Highness, you've you've done a study looking at critical care teams out of hospital cardiac arrest survival rates um, against advanced life support paramedics. Uh, and you saw the, the study showed no difference in in outcome. So if, I think it was a single site study retrospective and an observational study and um, Sort of leaving that aside, why do you think there was no difference in outcome from a critical care team, albeit a physician and paramedic led team versus a um, an, an ALS paramedic?
1: So it was a, a mixed um, picture. We actually included a number of pre-hospital critical care services who ran mixed models or purely critical care paramedic models and we we did some subgroup analysis to see if there was any difference between the different ways of configuring a critical care team and, and that didn't seem to be the issue. So it's an overall effect um, or lack thereof on survival after non-traumatic cardiac arrest. Interesting, though, there was a fairly strong and clear difference in survival to hospitals, so your sustained ROSC rates, and probably the best explanation is that if you look at patients after cardiac arrest, so when at ROSC, there are some patients that are fairly stable and will probably do well, and then there's a small group of patients who are cardiovascularly unstable, who require airway interventions. And, and those are probably the patients where pre-hospital critical care does prevent a re-arrest or, or pre-hospital death shortly after. But there also is usually a reason why they are so unwell, why they are so cardiovascular unstable, and that's the, the, the severity of the underlying insult, either from the initial cardiac arrest or from prolonged downtime. And so while critical care interventions manage to keep these patients alive, Um, that effects of tapers out over time. And unfortunately, these patients then still end up dying later in hospital. So we just haven't got the interventions that can undo some of the damage that's happened.
0: Yeah, indeed. And quite quickly compounds um as 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 you as you were saying uh, the the hypoxic brain injury leading to the edematous swollen brain uh, days down the line no matter how good the ventilation strategy is 15 20 minutes into into resuscitation if it's not been there well they've had an occluded and and and, an absence of ventilation um it it precludes Compliance and and sort of gold standards care yeah, further down the line. So yeah, interesting, absolutely interesting. And just just concordance to that point, Yanis, you know what we found from the Airways Two trial was that actually an, an, an unequivocal overall benefits um, between ET intubation and supraglottic devices. And actually, what, what we found was actually that that people that were having fundamentally basic Good life support or, or good airway management were having far better outcomes, and and actually the ones which didn't even need a, a, a intubation or supraglottic airways because you you they were being shocked back to life, all or, or the quicker, or managed all the quicker in in the community, but 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 interestingly it, it didn't there wasn't that unequivocal unequivocal benefit because actually the survivability laid. So much sooner down, sooner down the line than 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 that extended time period where that where that seemed to be the deciding factor.
1: Yeah, Airways Two is obviously an a, amazing important study, and what I actually think it hopes or hope it allows us to do is actually move away from the airway discussion and think a bit more about what we do with that airway, because in the end, it's about what you do with those breaths and not overventilating patients because that probably has quite a detrimental in fact, impact in somebody who is in cardiac arrest so i think we can start focusing on these things and move away from the airway discussion okay Yannis, so Gian- in your paper
0: so f- should physicians attend atrophospital cardiac arrest you come to the conclusion that there's no increase in survival rate or utility substantiated by the evidence physician for physician-led teams does this just emphasize in your mind the importance of basics done well from an early phase of care?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the as critical care teams, whether they're physician or paramedics, because they have that targeted dispatch element, they will always arrive late at scene. There will be the occasional patient where we happen to be first on scene, but usually that's a late arriving resource. And The only way a patient can even have any benefit from that is if up to that point of critical care team arrival, everything has gone really, really well. And that's what we need to focus on in terms of research and and implementation is to get those additional steps well. And as I said, a lot of that is even before EMS arrival in the community. And we can play a real important role here in, in education and training. In
0: 2013, um, you wrote a study where you referenced that prospective RSI can be safely undertaken by a physician paramedic model with first pass rates higher um, in physician paramedic models rather than critical care paramedic models. This was a single site retrospective analysis. In your mind, Johannes, what methodologies would you like to see from future, future iterations of research sort of similar to this to, to build upon upon your research?
1: Yeah, so I think the important thing to from that paper is that there was a lot of variation in individual success rates independent of their professional background. And this highlights the need for clinical governance and monitoring of things like first pass success rates. In research actually, I think we can again maybe slightly move on from this. So I think first pass success rate is really useful for internal audit and governance. Well, we've got plenty of papers now that show that you can achieve high first-pay success rate in pre-hospital critical care services. But that doesn't equate to patient benefit. And there's always a bit of a danger when dealing with critical critical patients that we re- replace benefit for the patient with successful procedures because that makes us feel like we've done the right thing. And as an example, if you sort of look at polytrauma patient you know you can do a very slick intubation with a first pass within seconds but that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually helped that patient so if you look at Kate Crutzen's paper um, from I think last year where they looked at polytrauma patients with GCS of 13 or above there was an association with worse outcomes when these patients were intubated compared to non-intubated patients so that is not definite answer but it just raises a question of we really need to look at overall patient benefit at appropriate patient selection and move on from a sort of um interim target of first pass success rate
0: indeed and i think that's there's a real utility to that and that 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 also notions towards more of the holistic um the holistic patient rather than like you said the uh the selection of of a finite motor skill looking at looking at patient selection and also looking at outcomes as well which is which is far more powerful Um. so johannes just moving on and just uh, talking about the current climate really so what are your thoughts on the internally embedded critical care teams inside of ambulance services so we have seen a real shift from The formulaic approach whereby there is a critical care team, uh, quite often uh, an air ambulance, um, uh, paramedic doctor model. Um, We've now seen a real shift within the NHS trusts whereby there's been an embedding of critical care teams, namely critical care paramedic teams, uh, ownership, within the within the ambulance services so they they they're, they're they're an internally embedded scheme what um, some what's your thought
1: on, on, on that shift yeah i think like any change it comes with benefits or or chances and and risks and certainly the benefit of increased integration is that any critical care service always depends on a decent ambulance service So so you can run a decent ambulance service without critical care, but you can't run a critical care service successfully without working together with an ambulance service because that's where your activation comes from. That's where your triage comes from. And I think an increasing integration helps with that because it is now an ambulance service resource that therefore there's an an integral interest in, in using that and integrating it well. So this is particularly around, as I said, dispatch and communication with paramedics on scene. Um, So example, I think when when we set up a critical care team externally to the ambulance service, you'd arrive at scene, um, do an RSI, and you sort of start from scratch with setting up for that. And then through communication and increasingly working together. Now, if paramedics request an ambulance here locally for an RSI, then frequently, when, when the service arrives, that patient is fully set up with two IV access with fluid running on a stretcher in a good location because that cooperation has just increased over time. On the other hand, there's some benefit of sitting slightly separate to the general ambulance service, and that's around having a sort of a ring-fenced budget and autonomy of operation. So certainly in the UK and probably in, in many other countries, ambulance services are under, under remarkable pressures to just deliver service to increasing volumes of patients and there is a risk when you integrate critical care services directly into the service that that budget and autonomy gets eroded and increasingly critical care becomes part of a standard response for volume rather than for critical illness that's a really interesting observation
0: um and i absolutely agree with that actually um uh, and, and actually in the current pandemic we see that um like you said actually the mandate of an ambulance services is, is to cater to the masses and and actually when that's when that's a the case it's it's very it's hard and prudent to ring fence and, and protect that critical care element because there is always going to be a facet of critical care within the within the cohort interestingly enough that seems to be shifted to the to, to the medical patients right now, uh, talking to, uh, and also from the first wave, uh, very much felt that there was an absence of trauma. There's not as many people moving around. Uh, there's 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 not the, necessarily the gangs on the streets or the or the mo- uh, uh, road traffic collisions. But there is a facet of critical care within ARDS within uh, resp- chronic or acute respiratory pathology. So so it's, it's almost like the critical care um, workload shifts, uh, from, uh, in, in times like this. Okay. So Johannes, just, just looking at, um, topics of, of research that you think are necessary at the moment, uh, to show utility and efficiency, uh, or lack of around critical care teams. What, what, what areas of research do you think are prudent for, for, for people to be studying, uh, at this, at this time?
1: Yeah, so there's certainly an increasing body of literature on the topic and quite a lot of progress has been made. So we now know what can be done, how it should probably be done in an optimal fashion, what critical care actually is. And unfortunately, what still slightly eludes us is that overall benefit. And I think we need to go back and look at patient selection and, and streamlining interventions. And then also start looking at this very coarse and dichotomous outcome of survival to hospital. This is very, very challenging, but there's a lot of other outcomes that are important. So things like functional outcomes. And just as an example, if I don't ride motorbikes, but if if I were to do it, and if I were to come off my motorbike and had, let's say bilateral open lower limb fractures, they wouldn't necessarily Threaten my survival I, with sort of standard ALS care. I, I would still survive these injuries, but if I was in that situation, I would really, really want a critical care team to come and give me some midazolam, ketamine, straighten my limbs, and I would think that that would very likely improve my quality of life down the line. So reduce that sort of PTSD that comes along with an event like that, being in pain and improving functional outcomes on limbs um, through increased soft tissue recovery. So that would be ideal. How to actually go about that is a whole different question um, and one that we probably need a bit of time to get to. Yeah, so
0: re- it's really interesting point actually, Johannes, you make there, which is the utility of critical care teams outside of what might be the perceived uh, morbidity and mortality, which relates to... Um, or, or or mortality figures really. So it's not adverse cardiac arrest, but it actually still contributes to quality of life at at, at patient consultation because advanced analgesia um, it streamlines hopefully the patient care uh, because they, because the patient has a, a, a more comfortable ride into hospital and and you know goes to the goes to the right place which 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 may happen uh already but actually you want those those advanced levels of of, of amnesia so i i completely agree with you it's it's about multi-domain pathology just not, not looking outside of the sort of single stream benefit um okay good so just whilst we're on the topic of contemporary literature and contemporary uh research you do have a paper which I'm eyeing at the moment, which is the association between admission to a cardiac arrest centre or heart attack, hack, heart attack centre that we, we call it, and survival to hospital discharge for adults showing, uh, fo- following ad for hospital cardiac arrest, so a multi-centre observational study. Can you, can you just speak to that study and, 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 and what it's
1: about? Yeah, that was sort of the um, follow up on looking at critical care teams as an intervention for cardiac arrest and then following that chain of survival into hospital. Is there a benefit of bypassing your nearest or smaller hospital emergency department in a patient with cardiac arrest in favor of a either larger volume hospital or one that provides um, access to primary PCI and cardiology services 24 hours a day? And again, this is an observational study, so it is not a definite answer, but it allows us to give us an estimate of how big an effect size on survival to hospital discharge we might get from a strategy like that. And in a a short summary, um, there might be a benefit of about 2% absolute difference in survival, which isn't gigantic, but it is an important difference. And this supports sort of the ongoing trajectory that is already starting with the documents like um, resuscitation to recovery, I think it's called, um, and guidelines that are developing in the UK and in other countries around centralization of post-ROSC cardiac arrest care. Indeed. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, and that's that's
0: fantastic. Actually, it's been something that's been happening in London for for a number of years now where we streamline patients to these heart attack centers or hacks with primary PCI and preferentially um, um, favor that over 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 very much over thrombolysis or 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 that secondary transfer, because we know that secondary transfers does have a direct impact on mobility and mortality. So, Johannes, just looking at um, uh, on scene tasks versus um, sort of skill grade and rank. So, sort of maybe on scene tasks that sit sit outside of the skill matrix that 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 you would be looking at around a physician and or paramedic. Have you from the from the literature have you found any revelations um, around effective on scene tasks, which which uh, might not be the fanciful. Um, a ceiling of care which either a critical care paramedic and or physician might deliver
1: so when it comes to skills that sit outside of grade and rank I think it's not so much about that one intervention that's going to make a huge difference but there's something about deliberate and expertise practice and it's probably my favourite quote from Muhammad Ali is, is to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee uh, of course, he was talking about his his footwork and his punching and he didn't say it in a weird German English accent. But to me, what that means is is to be really good at what you're doing. And it doesn't really matter what that skill is, but to de- have that deliberate and and make it a meaningful intervention. Um, because different patients in pre-hospital care have very different needs. And as an example, if you take a patient uh, with a penetrating trauma from let's say a stab wound, if they are walking and talking, that should be a 20 second assessment, followed by a walk to the ambulance, a speedy transfer to hospital and a cannula en route. So that's absolutely minimal intervention. You take that same patient and they arrest on scene and suddenly you're throwing a whole number of very, very complex critical care intervention at that patient. That's sort of the two examples of what still gets discussed is a scoop and run versus stay and play. And I think if you, if you think what every single pre-hospital practitioner could do, irrespectively of what their skill mix is or what their rank is, they can deliver meaningful interventions and in knowing what those interventions are and they can deliver them well. And at the same time expedite extrication and transfer to hospital.
0: I really agree with that answer, actually, Johannes. and I I think, I think you're right, it's, it's, it's knowing what ceiling of care the patient mandates, because pathology changes and extremes of pathology in in, in front of the face, but I think sharing the non technical skills around sharing the mental model, simultaneous activity, um, getting a collective agreement on both immediate and future outcomes, i.e. this, all this patient needs right now is, is bring into the to the ambulance hemorrhage control and analgesia whilst we're placing a blue call it's it's about knowing what the scene and or patient needs and and stepping forward with those non-technical skills which sits outside of skill grade and sits outside of uh of of of, of seniority as well because i think anyone can display those uh, those attributes Are there any aspects or mindset approaches that have evolved in your practice that maybe weren't there 10 years ago that that, that you've had a sort of a, a revelatory experience about?
1: Yes, and it's actually what you just touched on and it's the human factors, crew resource management, whatever you want to call it, that side of practice. So 10 years ago, that was probably still a fairly niche subject. A few interested people got brought up at a course here and there. And that's really developed partially, I think, through social media education um, to what is now a really fairly established key concept of emergency medicine and pre-hospital care. And we now have a real vocabulary of talking about things like bandwidth, task focus, cognitive biases things we probably did talk about 10 years ago too, but we just didn't actually know what it was. We didn't have a a science and a framework behind that. And if you think about it, these things affect every single patient care episode, irrespectively of what physical interventions or medications get delivered. And it's a real tool to improve results for every single patient and to make our work a bit easier on ourselves too. Yes,
0: fantastic. And I absolutely agree with that final point. And I think it's as a mindful practitioner, uh, it's prudent to know to realize that in other people, but more so even to realize that in yourself. And when you're starting to become overwhelmed on scene and starting to see those, those indicators occur in yourself, that task focus and 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 those human factors. And and you're right. Uh, that's, that's that's generally more accepted and well known about now versus 20 years ago when it wasn't really it wasn't really a uh, a well covered subject within within pre-hospital care. So it's definitely had more exposure. Johannes, if people want to look at your some of your fantastic research and, you know, just look at some of the the catalog of, of empirical research that you've put out there, where, would, where and how could they could they access
1: it? So, most of my research is uh, openly available on the University of the West of England repository. That's maybe not the West best known homepage in the world. Um, a shortcut to that would be my Twitter account at jfopelius, and there should be a pinned tweet with a link to the repository. And if you're really, really interested, you can read my 80,000 word document, PhD on the topic. And if you make it to the end, I'll be very impressed.
0: Um, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So we'll put some links in the show notes because it is fantastic reading actually for people within critical care or aspiring to get into critical care. Um because there's there's some really interesting comparison studies. And also um, just contrasting, uh, uh, and also a, pro- a progressive sense of where the where the research is coming to. You also do some some really good consensus work around where the ambulance service is up to around the twelve different NHS ambulance services and and sort of the dichotomy of care within each. So there's some really fantastic work in there, and we'll put that in the in the show notes what well, this just leads me to say is thank you for your time johannes today i really appreciate uh, your just your insights and your your input uh, into the conversation so thank you
1: no thank you a real pleasure and i'm going to go and put my name into google now and see what actually happens <laughs> <laughs> thanks johannes
0: you're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the medics academy network